What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Stack Strength Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Daniel DeBrock, and today I'm sitting down with Nick Lamb. So first off, Nick, thanks so much for jumping on. It's uh, it's great to connect actually face-to-face. Uh, I know we've been chatting a little while on Instagram about some upcoming projects we're going to be working on together, but uh, yeah, man, can you intro yourself for maybe people who aren't familiar with you and some of the work that you've been doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for first and foremost. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I've been <clears throat> I've been a coach in the industry for a little over a decade now. So worked in a lot of different settings. You know, spent time working in big box gyms and, and bouncing around. Uh, actually, spent a good majority of my career working in the rehabilitative setting. Uh, so originally, the plan was to go to uh, PT school. So spent a lot of time working in that setting as a trainer, coach alongside. PTs in that in that collaborative environment and within that time you know one of the things that developed was this niche expertise fascination around sleep which I know we're going to dive into and talk uh, quite a bit about today and I've been providing sleep coaching now as a separate service as a consulting service and coaching service for about the last five to six years and then over the last three years or so been primarily focused on industry education so i have a sleep coaching course and host regular events within uh within the education space and so really trying to bridge the the gap between the education and knowledge that's out around sleep it's kind of falls by the wayside in terms of practical application so that's been a big point of my focus over the last couple years Awesome. And that's definitely something that I think is so critically important to training. A lot of the times people will look to adopt more advanced uh, approaches, let's say. They'll, they'll try and do, you know, some metabolic type, you know, resiliency training with their cold and hot and, uh, you know, so some sort of temperature adjustment and, and take all these supplements and do all these things. And that's fantastic. But then at the same time, if you're not checking off these main boxes, for recovery, regeneration, all that stuff, then you end up really shooting yourself in the foot <laughs> at the end of the day. But I, a lot of the times I think it's the simplest things that are really the most difficult to do because they're so mundane and boring and they just require consistent implementation day in and day out. And so sure. I guess before we get into some of those tactics and strategies, um, can you just talk a little bit about sort of the sleep process how that impacts, um, you know, let's say memory consolidation, cognitive function, your ability to even make good decisions moving forward, because I think that's something that people don't necessarily talk a lot about. And if you're sleep deprived, the likelihood of you making bad decisions probably goes up a fair bit. And so I think that would be an interesting place to start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like you said, there's a there's a lot of different components we can discuss, and there's so many different facets to how sleep impacts your overall health, your well-being, your ability to perform, and even just how you experience your day-to-day life. And I think that's where sometimes I'll put a lot of the focus and messaging on for people, not only because I think it's easier from the buy-in side of things of really trying to prioritize sleep and integrate it into your routine, um, but just in the bigger picture of, of impact, it's, again, how it impacts your, your day-to-day life. And so you talked about memory retention and focus and mental capacity and your reactiveness with the people that you care about, your patience levels, your really just all facets of who you are and how you interact with the people that you care about are impacted by sleep. And so obviously, you know, we can talk a lot about the way sleep impacts 
performance goals or fitness goals or any of those things. Um, but I think what's the most important and maybe the most overlooked is the fact that sleep just impacts how you experience your day-to-day -day life, how you go about your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I mean, I've definitely been in that situation where, you know, maybe you're having a conversation with someone and you're just a little bit more worn out than usual and you have less, less patience and you give people a little bit less slack and what normally would be able to, uh, would normally be able to diffuse sort of escalates and just definitely adds up and sort of ends up turning into the snowball effect. Um, so regarding sleep and decisions around, let's say training and nutrition and just general adherence, um, what are some of the big considerations that people need to be aware of and how, how are those things sort of associated? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, we're often or people are often after the complex solutions and the complex variables to their training programs. But I think, you know, the first step is the appreciation for sleep as being really foundational to what you're trying to do, right? So no matter what fitness related goal, exercise related goal, performance related goal you have, at the end of the day, you provide your body a stimulus, you provide your body a stressor, right? Something that essentially forces the body to adapt in some way, right? It causes a temporary reduction in function, temporary fatigue, whatever you want to call it. And the idea is that this temporary stressor, this strategically placed stressor makes your body better, right? In the long run, you adapt to that and get better. Um, and while it seems obvious, but I think a lot of people and even people in the industry and coaches in the industry lose sight of is that that adaptation only occurs via recovery, right? Via the process of recovery. And too often recovery is misunderstood and miscommunicated. Recovery either gets labeled as time in between training sessions, right? So take time in between your training sessions and then that'll allow you to recover. Or it's what passive recovery modalities can I implement into my routine? What cryotherapy or Norma Tech boots or what can I do to adjunct my recovery? And all those things can be a component of recovery and a facet of recovery. But at the end of the day, the only way in which recovery actually occurs and on a, on a consistent basis is via quality sleep, right? And if we don't get that recovery, therefore we don't get the adaptation we're leaving a huge component of fitness related goals or performance related goals on the table right we're missing out on what's absolutely fundamental what's basic to what actually allows these fitness goals to occur and so i think that appreciation that understanding that you need to guide that process of recovery via prioritizing sleep in order to really work yourself towards uh, what we're trying to accomplish and like I said in fitness and performance related goals Yeah, 100% I, I definitely agree there's uh, There's definitely a push towards doing some of these more difficult tasks, but it's it's so funny because even though it's so simple I think a lot of people still struggle with it. like I definitely struggle with sleep um, Especially if you do have sleep issues. There's a lot of people might get anxiety around uh, around sleep time or they just have variable schedules and things like that. And so, you know, exactly like you were saying, the, the sleep element kind of closes that adaptive cycle, that, that loop of the adaptive cycle where now you can actually train again, you can, you can uh, incorporate another stimulus or introduce another stimulus and, and the individual can get better. Um, 
So in terms of the negative impact on training that, that sleep loss or sleep deprivation has, can we go into some of the, some of the details around that? And specifically, I think a lot of people kind of had this idea that you can adapt to less sleep over time, which I haven't really found to be the case. And I haven't really seen that supported in research, but uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that as well as some of the potential um, performance costs of, of sleep loss and even talking about like uh, how much and how rapidly that stuff sets on. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And even before that, I want to just go back to one other thing you mentioned as well, because I think it's, it's important to highlight in the sense that the, the interesting thing about sleep in the industry and in how people talk about it, I think for the vast majority of the industry, we would agree we overcomplicate things. Things get overcomplicated and people are trying to find those complex solutions. And the app, the exact opposite is done for, for sleep. Sleep is oversimplified. And I think that's part of the problem and why people are actually struggling is a lot of the messaging has oversimplified sleep, right? And I think even most coaches that I talk to the conversations that they have with their clients around sleep usually center are very superficial. They usually center around, do you sleep eight hours? Okay. If you don't, let's try and get there, right? Let's try and make that more a priority. Or if you do get that, okay, great. I'm not going to address it anymore. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. And there's no context or individuality to that person in their situation. And there's a lot more, you know, we don't have to overcomplicate it, but there's a lot more to the equation. We can obviously talk, um, more about some of those elements, but I just wanted to point that out because you, uh, because you mentioned it on the, on the performance deficit side. Yeah. It's, it's really all facets of performance and of your ability to show up in the gym and perform in the gym. And then, like I said, the ability to recover, right? So whether we're talking about strength and power output, whether we're talking about recovery and adaptability, whether we're talking about reaction times, whether we're talking about just your mental focus to be there for the entirety of the training session, um, sleep is going to play a role and it's going to impact in every single facet. And in terms of the time frame, it happens pretty quickly and pretty easily. So, you know, I, again, we over, we look, we overlook at the sleep duration piece, you know, it's, oh, if I didn't get eight hours, how is that going to affect my training sessions? And if you're continually not getting the right sleep duration, it's going to adversely affect your training sessions. It's going to adversely affect your, your performance, but it's also these other facets and these other pillars to healthy sleep as well. It's the quality and depth of sleep that you're getting. It's the regularity with which you're going to bed and waking up at the same time. It's continuity of sleep. Are you able to go through all the stages of sleep uninterrupted? And so I think that's another element that gets left out is it's not just sleep duration that has the ability to negatively impact your performance. It's also these other facets to, to healthy sleep as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And so why don't we dive into some of those things? Because, um, well, I think that's a really important thing to understand to kind of contextualize some of the information and some of the recommendations we'll probably get a little bit later on. Um, why don't we touch a little bit more on some of those points where someone can sort of look at and evaluate their, their sleep quality from a more comprehensive lens. What, yeah. like, what does that conversation look like with you when you're working with, uh, let's say a new athlete and you're talking to them to get a better idea of 
what their their sleep hygiene looks like and and sort of broader context in general yeah yeah absolutely you know i think finding a common theme here of what we're talking about in the sense of trying to overcomplicate you know we can talk a bit about sleep trackers and what they do and don't tell you i think people want when you start to talk about sleep quality athletes want and people want a you know more complicated more detailed you know analysis of sleep quality and there are certain elements that you can look into from sleep trackers um, but at the end of the day you can keep it pretty simple and i think from an implementation standpoint this is the best um, but in terms of gauging your sleep quality there's really a handful of even subjective things that I'll look at with an athlete or look at with somebody that's going to give you a lot of information, right? General energy levels, having them rate their energy levels on a scale of one to 10, their mood, their ability to focus, um, the amount of sleepiness that they're feeling throughout the day, their reliance on caffeine or feeling like they need caffeine to kind of fuel themselves through the day. Those elements are going to give you a pretty good gauge of sleep quality because contrary to the belief that a lot of people have, sleep quality is going to more directly and more quickly affects the, affect those things than sleep duration. People think that if they get six hours, that is what's going to impact their energy levels and their mood and all of those things. And it could to a certain degree, but the quality and depth of sleep that you're getting is going to impact those things much, much more, right? So if you're getting six hours of really quality sleep, you're going to feel better in those areas than if you're lying in bed for seven, eight hours, but getting really broken, not great quality sleep. Yeah, 100%. And so how might you approach that process of dialing in someone's sleep so they can get less interrupted sleep, uh, just higher quality sleep, but they're going through all the different stages. They're not waking up intermittently to go to the washroom or anything like that. Um, what might that process look like? Yeah, so there's a few different things to unpack, but I think where there's the most value in understanding, because there's, there's a lot of information out there, and I think a lot of it gets lumped into sleep hygiene, right? The top 10 sleep tips, the top five sleep tips to get a better sleep, you know, tonight, uh, you know, how to create your perfect sleep routine. And, um, and all these things are usually pretty true, pretty accurate, and can be helpful, but they haven't improved the bottom line for people struggling with sleep. And a big part of that is there's no context or individuality. And a big part of that is they're not really addressing one of the primary reasons why people are actually struggling. And I think this is really the biggest missing link in the world of sleep and of sleep optimization is the behavioral component to sleep. I think that really gets underlooked and underappreciated and it's the idea that in my experience and the experience of a lot of people in the sleep space that i know have worked with people really the primary reason why most people are struggling with sleep is behavior-based problems it's stress and anxiety that's built up around their sleep around their sleep process their inability to sleep they have negative thoughts and perceptions that have built up they have lost confidence in their ability to sleep They've created these negative associations between their bed, bedroom, bedtime. And so these things become this chronic feedback loop that they get uh, that they get stuck in. And so I think, you know, anytime I do something like this, the most valuable points that I can provide are these behavioral strategies. And so if we take a step back outside of 
medical conditions, right? So outside of a diagnosed sleep disorder, outside of a existing medical condition that we know adversely affects sleep, outside of those things, there are three primary causes of sleep issues. We call them the three Ps. So the first is predisposing factors, right? Predisposing factors are anything that makes an individual more likely to deal with sleep issues versus someone else. Higher levels of anxiety, lower distress tolerance. We can even put age in this category as well. There are certain struggles that do come about as you age and for a variety of different reasons. For those individuals, it doesn't mean, hey, there's nothing you can do. You're destined to struggle with sleep. It just means you need to give consideration to those things, those factors up front. Right. Next, you have predisposing or sorry, next you have precipitating factors. So precipitating factors are the acute variables. They're anything where for a period of time you struggle with sleep. So these are the things that everybody suffers with. You and I have suffered with and everybody listening has suffered with in some way, shape or form. Right. Where for a day, a week a few weeks sleep suffers. Maybe it's a change in schedule. Maybe it's you were sick. It's a bit more of a stressful time period in your life, right? You started a new job, whatever it might be, that sleep is temporarily suffering. But where people really get stuck, and for a vast majority of people who have sleep issues, it's in the last factors. It's in the uh, perpetuating factors. And this is where those acute issues become chronic. So now people's fundamental beliefs, expectations, confidence in their ability to sleep have all changed, right? And they're stuck in these negative feedback loops where they have negative perceptions and negative beliefs around their sleep that then ingrain themselves into negative emotions and negative habits. And it can be really difficult for people to pull themselves out of that cycle and out of that situation. And the last thing that forms kind of the last you know, nail in the coffin on that, so to speak, is something called conditioned arousal. So conditioned arousal is the learned association and almost expectation to be in bed and be awake, right? Bed, bedroom, bedtime have all become triggers and associations for being awake versus being asleep. Um, the analogy that I give for that is to think of this kind of like food poisoning, right? If you were to go to a restaurant and you got food poisoning eating there, and then your buddies convince you to go back again, and you got food poisoning again when you went back. Now at that point, even just hearing the name of the restaurant or driving past it, you might actually feel physically ill. You might remember what that feeling kind of feels like, and there's an association that exists there. So something similar forms with sleep for people who have trouble sleeping. If they're having that inability to sleep, it really perpetuates in a in a negative feedback loop. And so I know that's kind of a long-winded answer and breakdown there. And we can talk about some practical strategies off of those things. But but again, I think that is where more people are struggling and where there's a lot more value as opposed to the, you know, the typical sleep hygiene or sleep lifestyle hacks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, th I think that's a fantastic explanation as well. So, you know, I'll take a very similar approach when I'm working with nutrition uh, clients where we kind of zoom out and say, okay, before we even start talking about what you're eating, like, let's look at what you're actually doing and why. 
I think from like a diagnostic standpoint, when you start creating awareness around people's behaviors and then sort of highlighting like, hey, these things are associated. People can kind of, they start to connect the dots on their own. And they're like, holy shit, like I can see why in this case, you know, I've set myself up to be extremely anxious and amped up before going to bed. Like I can totally understand why that's the case. And in my experience, it's like really empowering because it actually says, hey, I can control these things. You know, it's tough and it's maybe it's an extra barrier for certain individuals who are more prone to anxiety, like you were saying. But at the same time, now it puts that the opportunity for, for you to actually do something back in your hands, which which is fantastic. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, so once you've kind of established that sort of set the ground rules and been like, okay, you know, here are the things that we need to look at. Uh, you've established what that particular individual is being affected by. How do you go on approach, sorry, how do you approach the, the actual um, intervention, let's say, with the individual? And then how do you progress it from there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like, like, like I said, we always start with the behavioral side to this. So if we go at, you know, some of the things that I just talked about or some of the common problems, usually the first step is thought restructuring, right? Changing some of those narratives that people have. And, you know, you, you pointed it out well in the sense of if you can help people create that awareness around the behavioral component, it's absolutely huge. And then the other thing, especially with these thoughts and perceptions that is super important, especially specifically talking to sleep, is that sleep is a bit different than exercise and nutrition in the sense that I think for both of those, there is a degree of, albeit it's not the only piece, there is a degree of willpower that exists, right? To, to you know, have some form of motivation and willpower and commitment and kind of continuing on that and creating momentum in that way. Sleep is a bit of the opposite in the sense that there's no willpower really involved. And in fact, you're trying to you're trying to surrender that in a, in a way, right? And the more you try to overfocus, the the more difficult that it that it is. And I think we've all experienced that with you know your head hits the pillow and it's racing thoughts or whatever it might be, right? And so, step number one is usually restructuring those negative thoughts and perceptions that that people have, right? And this is like fundamental CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, right? The idea that negative thoughts fuel negative emotions which fuel negative behaviors. And it's very difficult to try and change or near impossible to change the emotions that you feel, right? And even the subsequent behaviors that happen as a result of that. But where you can break the cycle is trying to restructure those thoughts that people have. And there's a lot of negative ideas that people will have around their sleep that just aren't true. So the idea that if you don't get eight hours of sleep, all hope is lost and that, you know, one night of sleep is going to ruin your health and that you're just a poor sleeper. You've always been a poor sleeper. You're always going to be a poor sleeper. Any presence of those things, we need to make sure we address right off the bat. So if any, if people believe any of those things, we have to have a list of those things and then we've got to work through them. Right. And I almost look at it as putting these thoughts and beliefs on trial, right? Is there anything that we can point out, any research or anything that I can show them that's the contrary to what they what they feel about their sleep or what they think to be true about their sleep, right? Because people tend to over-dramatize a lot of these things as well. And so we'll work through those negative thoughts and perceptions that people have, and essentially we restructure them. So 
the restructuring is something that I think for some people might seem a bit silly at first, but it's having a list of these things and then rewriting them out in a positive way, saying them out loud, integrating it into conversation, making those new restructured thoughts and beliefs your new reality. And that does sometimes take a bit of time, right? It's not something that necessarily happens overnight, but it's still foundational because if we think about it, if you don't push past those things and restructure them, no matter what other hacks, no matter what other strategies you intervene with, if you fundamentally believe these things and you fundamentally believe that you're not a good sleeper and that you're not destined to sleep well, you'll always come back to that and it'll always hold you back, right? So that's the the first first step. The next thing that I typically structure in for people and we review is constructive worry sessions. So, you know, some people you can liken this to or think of it as journaling or a brain dump, but I call them constructive worry sessions because we've all experienced when you process the day and when your mind is racing the most and you're thinking about all the things you have to do is when your head hits the pillow and it's pitch dark, right? It's pitch black. So having constructive worry sessions are essentially scheduling in every single day, whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes, a block to constructively, as the name suggests, deal with your worries, your thoughts, your problems. There's something about having them down on paper that can be really beneficial for, for a few different reasons. One, you're just carving out this time to, it could be as simple as one column problems, the other column plans, right? So these things that you're worried about, these things that might keep you up at night, what are some solutions? What are some problems? How are you actually going to address them and face them? And the biggest thing within sleep is it allows you to deflect. Right? So if your head hits the pillow and these thoughts start to creep in, these worries start to creep in, it allows you to deflect them because you know you've either A, already worked through them on that day's constructive worry session, or you know it's something you can deal with in tomorrow's constructive worry session because, again, you scheduled in scheduled it in to be a part of your, your every day. So those constructive worry sessions are, are huge and I find incredibly impactful. Um, the next set of behavior strategies goes into fighting that conditioned arousal I talked about. Um, but if you wanna have a pause point here, if you had any questions, we can pause at that point first. No, keep keep going. Um, I, I have a couple notes that uh, we can touch on after, but uh, no, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Okay, awesome. So the the next set of strategies here is like I said, trying to combat that conditioned arousal. So the conditioned arousal is that last behavioral step that forms where you're essentially expecting that you'll be in bed awake, you know, you won't be able to fall asleep, you'll you'll kind of continue to lie there and, and ruminate over your inability to sleep. And so the strategy for this is something called stimulus control. So stimulus control has a few a few different tenets or a few different components. The first is not doing things in the bed, bedroom and around bedtime that are not related to sleep, right? So I always say, this is the quote, right? Only sleep and sex should be done in the bedroom, especially in the time leading up to bed. But what you find is people do a lot of things that have nothing to do with sleep or winding down. They're, 
you know, they're working in bed, they're watching TV in bed, they're worrying in bed, they're eating in bed, which I always say and point out, I think is gross, but to each their own. So you're getting people doing way too many things that don't have anything to do with sleep. And so the idea is that you really want to create your bed, your physical bed and bedroom as a haven and association for sleep and sleep only, right? Um, you know, the example I always give for this that my wife absolutely hates is that my wife's a pillow talker. She loves to, when we're laying there trying to sleep, talk about the day, talk about everything we have coming up. But I've created it to the point where when my head hits the pillow, for me, that's it. Like the day is over. It's time to sleep. It's that association that's formed. And so often I'll fall asleep while she's mid-sentence, right? So, but that's the that's the that's the type of association and powerful association you're trying to form right so the next component to stimulus control is only going to bed when you are actually sleepy and this is the this is something that surprises people a lot because again like i touched on earlier we we overemphasize sleep duration we over we put too much focus on sleep duration and so we can think of it this way. You've got somebody who goes out with drinks for coworkers, right? And they get home at 10 PM. They're still a bit amped up, right? They were just having all these conversations. They were with friends. They get home, it's 10 PM. They've got to be up at 6 AM the next day for work, right? So the common intuition for people because of this eight hour myth and this eight hour idea that's in their head is they need to go to bed right now, right? They need to force themselves to go to sleep right now because they need to be up at 6 a.m. They need to be up in eight hours. So what they'll end up doing is forcing themselves into bed when they're not physically, physiologically ready for sleep yet, right? What ends up happening, they don't get eight hours anyway, and now they're spending time there not actually sleeping. Maybe it takes them a long time to fall asleep or they don't fall asleep as deep and then they wake up, right? Whatever it might be, they're getting really inefficient sleep and they're perpetuating these negative associations and they're not getting that target eight hours that they wanted anyway in the first place. So only going to bed when you are physiologically ready and very sleepy. Another analogy or example, liken it to food and nutrition, right? You don't go and sit at the dining room table and wait to be hungry, right? Same applies for, for sleep, only physically going to bed when you're actually sleepy and ready, even if it means that you're getting a lesser sleep duration in that situation <laughs> excuse me and then the last piece to stimulus control is physically and this one sounds counterintuitive but physically getting out of bed when you are unable to sleep so if you're having trouble falling asleep or if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're having trouble getting back to sleep physically get out of bed so it's that for me it's the 20 20 rule if it's 20 minutes or more that you're unable to fall asleep or fall back asleep, physically get out of bed and even bedroom for 20 minutes. Because again, we don't want those associations to form. We're thinking long-term with this. So even though that sounds counterintuitive, there's no benefit in you just continuing to lay there thinking about the fact that you can't get back to sleep. So getting out of bed, doing something obviously low level, not going and watching Netflix, but doing something low level like reading a book under a little light, breath work, whatever it might be that's not very stimulating. Um, and so those are the components to, to stimulus control. And all those strategies go after those behavioral components that are really at the root of why a lot of people are struggling with sleep.
I think those are great um, <clears throat> tactics and strategies. I really like how you talked about the initial um, element of sort of restructuring your thoughts. I think that's incredibly important, especially when you look at like the the research on self-efficacy and adherence and stuff like that. Like when you give people, like when you sort of allow people to question things that have been, <laughs> they've just sort of run with for a really long time. Definitely. And you're like, how do you know that? And you're like, uh, well, I just do. Okay, but can you explain it to me? All of a sudden they're like, huh, I've just been running with that for like 15 years and I had no idea. And yeah. it's, it's so interesting. And even, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, when I'm talking to coaches on this, that I always point out, it goes beyond just sleep. Like obviously these, these elements of cognitive restructuring are super important around sleep, but they're important in coaching in general. And if you really dive into cognitive distortions, these distorted thoughts and perceptions that people have and why they have those or why those might've been in place, it can do wonders for for just understanding the people and where they're coming from from an overall coaching perspective like the fact that people tend to discount the positive and they overgeneralize and all these cognitive distortions that are very common but diving into those and like i said why they developed and how to overcome them can be can be really impactful yeah absolutely and i mean i think too exactly like what you're saying it can be very easy to adopt a lot of sort of negative associations and just say, this is part of my identity. But then at the same time, if you really do some work, like, I mean, I've been lifting for a while now. And so that's just sort of part of my identity. Um, I know some people, like if, if I'm going out and I'm dieting, I might literally bring a scale to a restaurant and weigh out my food. And some people might think that that's weird. I honestly am not phased by it. And when people look at me strange, I don't even really notice it anymore because I've just been doing it for so long. This is just kind of part of who I am now. But I never would have thought that years ago, you know? And so I think when you start getting people to sort of question what they actually believe, why they're actually doing the things they're doing, if they actually have issues, you know, because I've heard that a lot, like, oh, I have so many issues, mostly regarding diet. Like, I have all these issues. And I'm like, oh, okay, explain that to me. Were you diagnosed with this? Oh, no, okay, why do you think you have this then? Can you explain what that actually is? And then all of a sudden, they realize that they've been saying, oh, I have celiac disease, or oh, I have this, or oh, I have that, when in reality, they don't even know how to define it. And they've never been diagnosed. And so... Yeah, it's, like, it's almost like when you have that revelation with people, and whether it's around sleep or things from a dietary perspective, it's like when they have that realization that what they've been telling themselves might not necessarily be the case at all, or even to that extent, it's like letting out a pressure valve and you can just see the, the stress and anxiety and whatever they have attached to it. That's just been released and alleviated. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, there's this moment of like sort of disbelief, like how, wait, what? Like <laughs> I really have just been running with this for so long and I've never questioned it. And I, I you know, we all do that. So it's fine. But uh, I definitely think there, there is something to be said about creating awareness and just like getting a diagnosis. I remember like for myself, when I got diagnosed with PTSD, that was huge for me because then I was like, fuck, this makes sense. Okay. I get it. You know, and now you can actually do something about it. So I really love how you talked about that first stage of just sort of questioning your your perceptions and your, I guess, 
you know, these preconditioned uh, beliefs that you might have around yourself, around sleep, around what your struggles actually are versus being like, are these actual like physiological issues that you have or do you just have really shitty habits, you know? And I mean, I, yeah, I really enjoy the, uh, the uh, what did you call it, conditioned arousal. I think those are great, uh, great strategies as well. And so um, I guess talking a little bit about sleep, um, our perspectives might differ a little bit. So I'm, I'm interested to hear w your take on this, but my understanding has been that you actually can't really condition yourself to lower, um, lower levels of sleep. Like, let's say, you know, you, you have like five or six hours of sleep. You don't, you never really adapt to that as far as I'm aware. Um, and it's more just that you're incapable of identifying <laughs> where you're falling short, but then there's also genetic variability in terms of how much sleep an individual needs. And so I'd love to get your feedback on that um, and maybe help individuals sort of self-select and see where they can maybe get away with uh, things and, and where they need to sort of push their, their attention towards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> there is definitely a, a level of genetic variance. And I think a lot of what I've communicated so far in this has been anti-sleep duration, right? And maybe almost leaning to that it doesn't matter. But it, it absolutely does. It does still matter. It's just more the idea that we over-focus on it. We don't want to put all the emphasis and all the gauge of sleep health on sleep duration. But but at the end of the day, it does matter. And we know that there is a certain minimum threshold for sleep duration that is important both in the short term and in the long term, right? And if you if you continually go below that, that you are going to see some type of deficits and you're going to pay some type of uh, some type of cost. And I think if you look at where this eight hour came from, it's at looking at these long-term studies and looking at mortality risk. And what they found was that the lowest mortality risk based on sleep duration was in this seven to nine hour window. And if you went below that, there was an increased mortality risk. And if you went even above that, so for people who were sleeping more than nine hours, there was also an increased mortality risk, actually an even higher mortality risk. And this was probably due to the fact that people who are sleeping that much are usually fighting some type of chronic disease or something that they're continually needing that sleep and they're sleeping more, right? Um, and so that seven to nine hours, again, where there's the lowest mortality risk, we the, the industry basically took the middle of that eight hours and we said that's the case for everybody in every situation. Um, but you mentioned it, there is a genetic variance that does exist here. And so it's irresponsible for me to just say, everybody needs eight hours, that's the minimum threshold because it does vary. It va varies on just the person's overall physiology. It varies on what they actually do, right? So the elite high level athletes that will tout that they sleep 10, 11 hours on a consistent basis, that's to offset the demands of what they place on their body, right? And that is, that is a trade-off. And that doesn't mean that the everyday person necessarily needs that amount, right? And so on the other side of that, the short sleepers, right? There's, you know, you might've heard or it might've been communicated that there are genetic short sleepers who don't need as much sleep. And that is true. There is a gene that allows certain individuals to be more efficient in their sleep cycles and they can get more out of those sleep cycles than you or I might be able to, right? It's not quite as drastic as a, of a drop-off as maybe people will 
pointed out to be. It's not that they can sleep four, four and a half hours and that's it. It's more in the range of six, six and a half, and they can be just as efficient in that amount of time as someone else might be able to be in, in seven, seven and a half hours. But what's worth pointing out with that is that's a fraction of a percent, a fraction of 1%. So the likelihood that that's you is not very high. And so a lot of times people will just lean on that as a, you know, as an excuse, as the, the poor sleep habits that they're, uh, that they're masquerading as, right? And so, you know, obviously the question off of that is, well, how do I know what this right sleep duration is for me? And I think really it comes down to, like I said earlier, and also in line with what we just talked about, it's the awareness piece, right? So make a commitment to painting more awareness around how you, how you feel, and how that correlates with how much and how well you're sleeping, right? So what are the three to five most important things for you that you experience on a day-to-day -day basis? Is it your ability to focus? Do you have a job or a role or something that you do that requires you to be ultra-focused for long periods of time? Is it energy levels, right? Do you have young kids like I do where you need continual energy levels? What are those things, those subjective variables that you wanna see improve? gauge where they're at currently, right? As you start to make some improvements, you can see where they stand, but then you can also see how sleep duration and sleep quality impact those things. So if you're consistently getting five, six hours of sleep and you feel shitty in all those areas, chances are you're not getting enough sleep and obviously quality is a piece of that. And so, you know, I think it's pretty, it, you can make it pretty simple in the sense of, you know, if you're getting six and a half, seven hours of sleep consistently and energy levels are good and you can focus and you don't feel sleepy throughout the day, I think you're probably in a pretty good place, right? I don't think you need to force yourself to sleep an hour or more just because it's out there that you need to sleep eight hours, right? So. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and this is something I actually tell a lot of people because I tend to get a lot of nutrition questions. Um, and a lot of them are very much like an oversimplification of something. So, you know, what should I set my macros to, or, or what's the best calorie tracking this and that equation, whatever. And I'll usually tell people to just multiply their body weight by between 35 and 45 and set some loose parameters around that. Sorry, in kilograms, your body weight in kilograms. And I'll be like, yeah, you know, here's some loose guidelines around where you should be at. And I know people are really shocked when I tell them that um, as like my piece of advice, but I'm like, look, doesn't necessarily matter like where you start, where you start is not as important as people think. Like we just need to get you in the ballpark. That, well, that first week is going to tell us if we're right or if we're wrong or if we're spot on, you know, because your body weight's either going to stay the same trend up or trend down. And exactly in the same way that you were saying about like, Hey, how do you feel just on a regular basis? Are you constantly straining your muscles? Are you constantly getting injured? Are you constantly beat up? Do you perform really poorly in training? And do you constantly feel like you're not recovered? Okay, you probably need to sleep a little bit more, you know, and it's, you don't need like an aura ring. You don't need any of this fancy technology. And so I really am a, a big proponent of just, you know, keeping things as simple as you can until they require greater degrees of complexity. And the reality is like, even for high level lifters, there's a lot that can be done with just very simple basic routines or, or um, questionnaires or, or whatever 
exactly like what you were saying. And so I think that it, it creates a really high degree of applicability and efficacy across a wide range of, of different individuals. So I'm really glad that you kind of brought that up just as sort of like a general guideline, because I do think it's really helpful. And I do think people kind of get caught up in the details and the nuance because it is interesting, but at the same time, is it entirely practically relevant for most people? Eh, maybe, maybe not, not you know? Yeah. Um, so I guess we are kind of coming up on that hour mark in the next little bit. Is there anything that uh, maybe you wanted to touch on real quick before uh, before we end off? Any maybe closing remarks or anything that uh, maybe I didn't bring up? Yeah, I mean, I think just I'm just thinking based on like common questions that that people typically have around sleep, and just to make sure I bring those up as well. So I guess two things. So one of the components that we didn't get to talk about that is certainly big when it comes to sleep and really overall health and performance is circadian rhythms. So if we think about what actually allows sleep to occur, what are the mechanisms that allow sleep to occur? There's there's three mechanisms, but there's two primary, and we'll just talk quickly about those two. So the first is the sleep pressure system. The sleep pressure system is pretty simple in the sense that as a byproduct of the energy that we use throughout the day, right? ATP is energy, it's our fuel source. As that's broken down, one of the byproducts is called adenosine. That adenosine actually builds up in the brain for every second that you're awake. The more you're awake and using energy, the more that that adenosine builds up in the brain until it hits a certain threshold where sleepiness is overwhelming and overpowering. The other mechanism is circadian rhythm timing couple things with circadian rhythms they are influenced in two parts there is a genetic component we've all heard morning larks or night owls and there is a huge environmental component as well so when different environmental and lifestyle factors are at play when you get exposed to light when you don't get exposed to light food timing even exercise timing even temperature can all influence and manipulate these circadian rhythms right and so it's not just a genetic predisposition of you're a morning person, you're a night person, and that's kind of in, ingrained, right? But based off of genetics and environment, there is a preferred time to be going to bed and a preferred time to be waking up, right? And the more that we go away from that preferred time, the more we can potentially see uh, potentially see sleep suffer. And so two things that, <clears throat> I want to talk about off of those mechanisms again because just because i know they're common questions one is on the circadian rhythm piece the genetic component and the classification that i use for the genetic preferences they're called chronotypes are based off uh the power of when it's a book by dr michael bryce um it's basically modeling four different animals and how they actually interact with the environment and you can learn quite a bit from identifying which of these chronotypes you are. There's a deep rabbit hole dive that you can take within that, where once you understand that per preference, there's really a preferred and optimal time to do just about everything based off of that, right? When you should be asking for a raise, when you should be doing this, when you should be doing that. I don't necessarily subscribe to that mentality where every aspect of your life should be structured and scheduled, but there is some interesting things that you can glean there. They also link them to different personality traits as well. So it can certainly be interesting to dive into and under, understand, but 
what I want to point out with that is that the gen the environmental and lifestyle factors are much more important than the genetics, right? And so when you're getting exposed to light, right, getting early daylight exposure, making sure your room is dark and you're not getting any light coming in um, at night, whether that be artificial light or otherwise, you know, keeping a condensed eating window, more of a time-restricted eating window, all these things are more important for your circadian rhythms and your circadian rhythm health than the, the chronotypes. And so that's the one thing. And then the other thing, because again, I get asked about it all the time, is naps, right? Are naps good, are naps bad? And to understand them really comes back to that sleep pressure. So for somebody who doesn't nap, sleep pressure builds up, right? Till when you go to bed at night, you sleep, sleep pressure goes back down and it just continues on that cycle. For somebody who naps, depending on the timing of the nap and the length of the nap, you're taking some of that sleep pressure down a bit. So let's say you nap for an hour and a half at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, you might not have enough time for that sleep pressure to build back up to the high level that we would like for it to be at. And so therefore it can negatively impact your ability to sleep at night. And so my general rule of thumb is I like at least eight hours between when your nap ends and when you're going to be going to bed and when you're planning to go to bed at night. Um, and so that's really the, there's other aspects to naps, but that's the, uh, the biggest piece. And so I know we're coming up on time. So I just wanted to, to highlight those things. Yeah, that's great. I think those are really valuable recommendations as well. So where can people find you? Yeah. So all things from a sleep perspective, um, on social media as at the online sleep coach, uh, my email is online sleep coach at gmail.com. I'm pretty responsive via email. So if you have questions or want to talk through things, feel free to shoot me an email. Um, for anybody who's a coach or practitioner, I do have a course on all things sleep and how to actually integrate it into a coaching process and into what you do. Uh, so it's sleepcoachcourse.com. Uh, where you can find out more of the details, but. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go check him out. Give him a follow. He puts out lots of great content on a regular basis. And also check out his, uh, his course. Nick, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It was great having you here. Absolutely, man. Great to, uh, great to connect and great to chat. Appreciate you having me on.